This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're here on Channel 111. We're going to talk about leadership. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> That's good. And I'm your host. I'm Jeff Klein. I'm the Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. Look how many times we say leadership. <laughs> and I'm joined in the studio by my friend and colleague in leadership, <laughs> Ann Greenhall. So nice to see you, Jeff. Great to be here. Yeah, you're the uh, Deputy Director of That's right. said leadership program. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> formerly known as the Ann and John McNulty. <laughs> Leadership program. Right. <laughs> Our third host, Mike Yusim, is off tonight, probably developing his or someone else's leadership. Don't you think? Very likely. That's just what he does. <laughs> That's what he does in the world. So uh, I think we have a pretty interesting show. Pretty. Well, yes. Yeah. We yes. have a startup. Yes. We have one of the world's probably most recognized brands, at least in travel. Yeah. Right. Uh, pretty and pretty established organization. And so in the first half of our mm -hmm. show, we're going to talk with two recent Wharton graduates who founded a company to solve the cost of college education and, and really the, the crisis around higher education. Uh, they call the company Patronage. We're going to find out in a little bit mm -hmm. how that works. And then, then in the second hour of the show, we're going to play back excerpts from a, a conversation I had recently a, under the, the, the banner of Wharton Leadership Lectures, which is our flagship lecture series here at the school. I had the priv privilege of sitting down with Rob Katz, who's been a guest on the show before. Here. Yes, he has. In fact, uh, he offered you a job when he was a guest. I know, as a, as a lifty, a lift <laughs> <Yes>. operator. <laughs> so Rob, I should mention, is the chairman and CEO of Vail Resorts. Mm -hmm. Probably the, no, not even probably, I'll just say the preeminent ski company uh, within the travel industry. Uh, own a number of resorts, have a number of partnerships. And Rob really talks about his vision to reimagine the mountain experience all around the world, right? And the ways that he does that through culture, through emotional intelligence, um, you know, Vail uh, as an organization recognized for couple years in a row now is one of America's top employers, mm -hmm. one of America's most innovative companies, et cetera. So um, we're going to be delighted to play back pieces of that conversation um, that I hosted about two weeks ago here in front mm -hmm. of a group of a couple hundred students. Mm -hmm. So that's our plan. And maybe, Anne, before we <laughs> okay. welcome tonight's guests on, All right. right? we, we have yeah. the cost of college education yeah. right, as a sort of backdrop mm -hmm. to the founding of patronage. Right. And, and I wonder, um, this is a, a topic that's near and dear to my own heart, you, you may or may not know that my father, mm -hmm. uh, whom my father and his older brother, Jim, were the, the two members of a four-child family to go to college, and first in their family, oh, right? first-generation college yeah. students. My Uncle Jim, as I understand the story, um, received some assistance from some of the nuns at the Catholic school that he went to and, oh. and was able to find his way into a scholarship and a, 
at a school in Ohio called St. Bonaventures. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. St. Bonaventures. Had to think about that for a second. My dad, as I got this story, the only way he was able to afford college uh, was the year he was graduating from high school, a wealthy uh, gentleman in the Pottsville area had passed away Mm. and established four scholarships for graduating high school seniors. Oh, wow. And my dad received one of them, which enabled him to go first to Penn State at the Schuylkill campus and then ultimately to head up to the main campus and graduate with an accounting degree. And, you know, dot, 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 fill in the blank, here we all are. So I always think of this question of college education. Right, right. And And um, the financing of college education. And I remember... You know, I was a little bit of a defiant youth, so <laughs> the last thing that I comes wanted such a, I know, such right? a surprise. <laughs> uh, the last thing I wanted to do was go to Penn State, where my dad went to college, and, which was you know kind of close. And I had my sights set on Virginia, right? And I felt like I was being kind of prudent because it had higher tuition than an in-state Penn State okay. tuition, but not. You know, not the same level of tuition as some other schools around the country, yeah. right? So, you know, Virginia has a, maybe a little bit more of a affordable tuition for out-of-staters. Um, but then I got accepted into the honors program at Penn State, and along with that came a half-tuition scholarship. Oh, boy. And even defiant Jeff knew. <laughs> that the writing was on the wall. He probably better pick Penn State <laughs> exactly. at this point. It didn't hurt. I will admit, and then I'm going to ask you about yeah. how, how you always, you know, you've yeah, put kids through college. This, yeah. You mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. Uh, obviously gone through. Yeah. Um, but it didn't hurt that I found out that honor students at Penn State got to register for classes before everyone else. And I felt <laughs> okay. like that special perk might be worth that. <laughs> might tuition. be worth yeah. it. <laughs> well, Jeff, I think <laughs> the story that I'll trot out is uh, a recent one, and that is that, as you know, I have three children. Yeah. All have recently completed their college education. And all were in college at the same time. All were in college at the right? same time. There was one year, all three in college at the same time, and there is absolutely no way I could have done that without support. In fact, and I must say support from dear old Penn, yeah. who gives a tuition benefit to its employees, whether or not the children of employees go to school at Penn elsewhere yeah it was almost like getting one year like getting a BOGO buy one get one free (laughs) 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 so for all whatever foibles the university may have and we all have foibles I am forever grateful to Penn for that yeah and and this is an issue that you know really faces generations in the in the country right now when we we think about access to higher education and the role that higher education plays and everything else so so with that as a backdrop yeah i think that's a great backdrop fantastic (laughs) i think we should bring our first guests into the conversation now uh they are zach pelka and connor swafford so um i'll do it one at a time zach how are you tonight All right, Dude, and uh, we'll see how <laughs> Connor's doing on. tonight. I'm doing well as well. Hey. Thanks for uh, having me on. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Zach, you were breaking up a little bit there, but we will um, trust that our our phone connection here will, uh, will maintain or sustain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Zach and Connor, you're co-founders of a company called Patronage, and I, I want to say a couple words about it. First mm-hmm. of all, I want to congratulate you. Yeah. 
on the big launch that you had here on Penn's campus just last month. So, um, thank you very much, Connor. If you would tell us, um, tell us a little bit about what the launch was like. Yeah, the launch was uh, was a lot of fun. Um, being able to present in front of about 150 students, administrators, uh, investors from around Philadelphia on what we've been working on since July of 2017 was a, was a great experience. Um, we're actually working with uh, one of Dr. Uh, Ann Greenhall's students um, through Management 100, a, a group mm-hmm. of their students, and they've been helping uh, put on the event for us. So we spent about 20 minutes telling everyone about patronage and then had uh, six experts in fintech and lending that were all Wharton founders. Um, mm-hmm. They all came in and sat on a panel for about an hour, and we, we discussed everything from income share agreements, which is what we're doing at Patronage, um, to how to be able to get FAFSA um, that much easier and, and filled out faster. Um, so a great, unbelievable experience, something I never would have thought I'd be doing a <laughs> year and a half outside of my uh, my Penn and Wharton ex- uh, graduation. Oh, that's fantastic. And Zach, if you would, will you say a few words about patronage? Um, you know, Connor mentioned the uh, the income sharing agreements, but but tell us a little bit about the concept for the uh, company. Yeah, sure. So basically, um, Connor and I, while going through Penn, quickly realized that one of the biggest issues surrounding society right now is the issue of student loans. We saw very closely with basically many of our peers being cornered into taking jobs that were significantly focused on kind of being high in paying rather than uh, people going into like writing or kind of innovative opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I actually was working in venture capital um, and through the diligence process was analyzing large investments in companies like Spotify, Netflix, Amazon. Um, And really the diligence process ended up boiling down to how is the founding team? So it got me thinking, like, if the core component of investing for large stage Series D type investments are the founders, how is this for sort of like seed investing or like Y Combinator companies like that? So that got me thinking kind of the financial thesis of why can't you invest in the entrepreneur himself or herself rather than the company? Because so many entrepreneurs start one company, two companies that fail, and then the third company takes off. Or vice versa, you could think of someone like an Elon Musk, fellow Wharton grad, where wouldn't you rather have had equity in Elon rather than <laughs> PayPal, Tesla, or SpaceX? So that really was the financial thesis of patronage. And sort of over time, we quickly realized that there's a huge application in the overall student loan market where there hasn't really been any disruption outside the likes of Common Bond, a pen, pen uh, company, you have SoFi, Lending Club. They're really all competing on lowering the overall APR, but that's really the only innovation in this space. So what we are doing at Patronage is creating a centralized platform that enables different types of institutional lenders to provide capital to students who are interested in taking out an income share agreement. So an income share agreement you could really think of like an equity investment into a student's future earnings. So you get a fixed principal investment in exchange for a set percentage of your income for a set period of time. So it, it really, you could think of it like shark take investing in, in students. Mm-hmm. 
I very clearly explained. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Zach. That was great. I, Are you I, just trying to figure out how much you're worth now? Is that the natural I, thing that happens I now? know I'm not worth too much. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I feel like if I, if I give you 20 bucks a month, <laughs> could I pull off? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So, Zach and, uh, and Connor, I just I love the name patronage, but I'd like to know how you came up with it. Yeah, sure. So I can speak to that. So when we came up with the idea, like we had sort of the financial thesis behind it, we're thinking about what are names that one have like a fintech leaning analogy, but also have a, a deeper kind of connection to the product that we were trying to create. So I was actually watching, there's a Netflix show on the Demetages that <laughs> I was watching and they mentioned patronage. I was like, oh, my God, this is perfect. This is literally mm -hmm. an Italian renaissance. Patronage could be something I could arguably help start the renaissance in which wealthy families in Italy in mm -hmm. kind of like the 1400s, 1500s provided capital to artists in which they basically enabled artists to pursue their, pursue their dreams, leverage their talents to create some of the most magnanimous art that's in the world today. So we thought that that clearly has a very close correlation with what we are doing in which people, schools, institutions are able to provide capital that enables students to leverage their talents, their skills, and pursue whatever their interests might be. And it aligns both the patrons, so the Domenici or <laughs> say it's Penn, and then the student or the artist. That's great. Very good. And I know that we'll get into some of the details on, you know, how you figure out, for example, what percentage of income ought to go back to the to the patron. But maybe uh, maybe before before we get there, just so far, what obstacles have you found? What what is what is the resistance to this idea? Yeah, in terms of the resistance um, that we've seen so far, one of the most major um, unforeseen uh, resistance has been the, the regulation in the space. Um, it's kind of like approaching Airbnb or Uber when they were entering their markets, and it was rather unregulated, okay. um, and they had to help shape the industry and shape the norm. Um, right now, there's no regulation surrounding, surrounding income share agreements. There are actually two bills, one in the House and one in the Senate, mm -hmm. um, with bipartisan support that's trying to help normalize and regulate the industry. Um, to spur capital markets investment, to spur income share agreement companies like, like us, like patronage. Um, but that's one of the things that, that we have uh, had not foreseen coming into it. So now it's, you have to go speak with uh, the lobbyists and the, the legislators to try and get income share agreements on people's radar. Because mm -hmm. even though there's $1.5 trillion of outstanding student debt, Maybe they don't think of this as the right solution right now. Maybe they think it's free tuition for all schools or other sorts of, of subsidies. Um, so that's been one of the really big things that we've been focusing on um, and trying to make an effort uh, for, for the coming year. Very good. And that was Connor who fielded that question. <laughs> Jeff. Wow. Uh, amazing <laughs> voice recognition, Oh, thank too. you. <laughs> you, must be a, you must be a professor. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I have a long history. <laughs> All right. uh, well, let me first just remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, and we're talking with Zach Pelka, Connor Swafford, the co-founders of Patronage, a company with a mission to help students pay off their college loans. Um, 
you know, I- income sharing agreements, uh, I feel like I'm by no means an expert. We do leadership here, not <laughs> not, fi- not fintech, right? Um, but there are some examples of income sharing agreements in the, the professional sports world. Am I right about that? Yep. So there's Fantex, which was one of the first early companies where effectively people could buy rights to athletes' future sort of like brand value. So mm-hmm. the most notable athlete was Vernon Davis, who uh, yeah. basically pledged away a portion of his future brand assets, mm-hmm. um, which actually is interesting because one of the thoughts that we had with patronage and a potential application is actually in minor league baseball, hmm. where many of the single-A, double-A, even triple-A players have a very low chance of actually making it to the major league baseball. Mm-hmm. But obviously you could think about many of these players are actually being paid close to minimum wage or potentially even below the, the livable wage in the U.S. So if you think about the ability to potentially fund many of these players, where it's very similar to a venture capital model, if you have someone uh, that basically takes off and makes it to the league, they're happy in which – they're a professional baseball player. They're making more money than they could ever imagine. But the lender clearly is also having huge IRR. But simultaneously for a player who's in single A who doesn't actually make it to the league, it's the cheapest form of financing that they will ever get the rest of their life because it's predicated on the potential of them making millions and millions in the MLB. So that's just one small use case. But we've thought a lot about how to incorporate athletics and sports and even potentially on the college side. Um, we've spoken with a number of athletic directors to could this potentially be a vehicle that could prevent uh, both coaches and kind of ADs from actually paying players under the table. We've seen this be a huge issue with um, obviously UNC, Louisville, some some big schools. So could this actually be applied as an alternative mechanism for kind of the corruption in the sports industry with college stars? Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And uh, are there examples of income sharing agreements in other other industries, other sectors? Yeah, I mean, in the in the mortgage industry, um, you're able to take out a, a form of an income share agreement where you can buy your house or, or you need to renovate your house, and you'll give away some of the appreciation and equity mm-hmm. um, that your house is going to uh, experience as a result of the renovation or if you're going and buying a, a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, so these, I mean, companies like these have been backed by the big name investors, like the Andreessen Horowitzes, um, have come in and, and see this equity share um, solution across the board. So whether it's for student loans, whether it's for employee or for uh, for athletes' contracts, or if it's going and buying a home, and I want to give away 20% of the future appreciation that I'm going to see in it, there's there's a multitude of, of ways that you can try and apply this equity share principle um, currently and in the future. All right. So now, Connor and Zach, how do you go about figuring out what that percentage should be? And, yeah, and sure. Who, who's <laughs> worth more between Ann and I? <laughs> we know that answer. Come on. <laughs> All right. How do so, we figure this out? So to address, yeah. So to address your question. And, um, and this is Zach, right? Yep. This Good. is Zach. So what we do is we take a number of different variables that a student inputs. So if they go through a traditional loan process, obviously you have to provide a lot of sort of private personal information. 
So with an ISA, we are not pricing you based on sort of backward-looking, family-based FICO <laughs> scores, zip code, things along those lines. But rather, we are analyzing your future potential earning values. So the kind of main predictor variables that we were looking into are things like university, major, GPA, SAT, when you're actually graduating. And we're in the process of incorporating even more data points, um, potentially things like uh, tests of your personality and, and basically different metrics of analyzing what your career trajectory would look like. Um, so how we actually price the students is predicated on basically the preferred lender's targeted IRR. We're able to analyze what the projected sort of cash flow of a student's career is going to look like. And then based on the upfront principal investment, are able to sort of back calculate what the necessary percentage of a student's income of that salary would have to be for the lender to hit their targeted IRR. So what that means is when we're pricing a student from, say, 10 versus a student from Penn State. Uh-oh, Jeff. Penn student. <laughs> yep. Now you're in trouble, Jeff. So, right, so, so the Penn student is, on aggregate, going to have a higher potential earning than the Penn State student. So for the same $10,000, would have to give away a smaller portion of their income than the Penn State student. That being said, because of the mechanics of the way we price it, the lender should be agnostic to whether they're providing capital to a Penn student or a Penn State student, because both ways they're being priced to specifically hit their targeted returns. Okay, so how about, let's say you have an English major. <laughs> how The percentage would be less than for, let's say, a business major, right? So, so why would it... Well, the earning the earning would be less for that English major, right? Correct. So, why would uh, an investor want to invest in an English major? Sure. So, so what we take into account if you're an English major or a finance major um, is that, as you said, the English major is going to have the the lower predicted income, right? On average. Um, so, in order to hit, let's say the investor wants a seven percent return we're going to have to take a larger share of the English major's future income mm. than the finance major because he or she has a higher predicted income. In order to get the investor 7% return, we have to take less money back. So that's why the investor's rather agnostic to whether or not it's an English oh, okay. major or a finance major that they are interested in, in, in uh, investing into. Mm, okay. And our hope is that then this translates to more students being able to think not just about, okay, this is a, a, a major that I'm very passionate about, mm -hmm. but also thinking about the career implications on what this means for the 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, um, and what is my choice as I'm a 20-year-old going to actually make when I'm 45 years old and I realize that I didn't get the degree that I really wish I or should have gotten. All right, so Connor, let me just follow that up, and then I'll hand back to, to Jeff. So if I'm an English major and I know I'm going to give away a you know a larger chunk of my future earnings wouldn't that wouldn't that give me pause about being an English major wouldn't I rather be a finance major it, Yeah exactly um so so part of what we've seen in studies conducted across the country from ranging from the Parthenon group to big think tanks like AIR and, and the American Enterprise Institute 
have been showing that a wide, uh, the large majority of students are going to college, going to get a degree for postgraduate success, for whatever job they will be coming out with when, when they graduate. Um, so what our hope is, is when they see their ISA, they're going to see the different percentages as a freshman or sophomore when they're trying to decide what major do I want to get. Um, and they're going to see, oh, I'm going to give away 7% of my income if I'm an English major, or I'm going to give away 3% of my income if I'm a finance major. So this may be able to help uh, some students decide what major they're going to be taking. Um, now, at the end of the day, we're actually going to be able to provide, in many instances, a cheaper form of financing for a lot of students than what they can get from the private market. Mm-hmm. Um, our peers, Zach and mine, we've seen Penn students specifically um, that are graduating from Wharton actually this year get 11.5% APR loans for 10 years. We modeled that out on $34,000 that this, uh, this senior was borrowing, and he's going to have to pay a predicted $75,000 because mm-hmm. of that. Um, if you take out the ISA with us, it's roughly, it's like 40% off of that mm. um, in comparison. But still, just yeah, to, just, yes, just to make, so, go for it, Zach, yeah. What, so one of the things I wanted to mention kind of on your question about the English major as well. So if you think about a traditional loan payment, it is agnostic to your career, meaning right. a Good teacher point. has to pay the same exact mm-hmm. monthly payment as an investment banker. Mm-hmm. So an English major might look and say, okay, I have to give away 5% of my income. This finance major has to give away 3% of my income. Mm-hmm. But with student loans, the people who are systematically sort of disadvantaged are the English majors, mm-hmm. um, which corners so many people specifically at Penn to go to really high-earning jobs that are potentially sort of low passion. So that's one of the biggest value propositions of an ISA is it has a fixed debt-to-income ratio in which throughout your career you can pursue whatever job it might be and you are not going to be paying more than you're actually obligated, which is definitely not the case with loans for the 80% of students who are not going into investment banking across the country. That's great. Thank you. Jeff? Um, we're going to head to a break in a minute or two here, and and I think when we come back, we'd really like to start to shift the conversation and and think a little bit about you know Zach, your leadership, Connor, your leadership mm-hmm. in establishing a firm like this <clears throat> and in trying to mm-hmm. disrupt an industry. Uh, um, so maybe before we get there, though, and and to start to wrap. Um, this kind of technical yeah. part of the the conversation up. Um, I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, what some of the key milestones were for you as you first came up with this concept and then started to, you know, started to socialize it, started to market test it a little bit. Um, you know, when was the point where you two looked at each other and, and maybe some other folks too <laughs> and said, you know, I think we really got something here. <laughs> Sure. I mean, the original, the beginning of patronage was with Zach on the East Coast and me at my full-time job consulting on the West Coast. Mm. We weren't even in the same room when it when it began. So you didn't um, look at each entirely, other. <laughs> there was no looking at each other to begin with. Um, so we worked on it from about July until August, just creating a business plan, creating a pitch deck, using a lot of, of our Wharton experience, um, actually classes that we took, we had to build business plans together, um, and we just took that business plan and just 
stripped it of all the information and now added all the income share agreement and patronage info inside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we said for um, us to basically commit and determine whether or not we were going to do it, um, we wanted to speak to some experts, some mentors of ours in the field, um, get their experience on it. They have 5, 10, 15 years plus of, of venture capital experience, see what they thought of our idea, um, and then see if we could raise the money. So we got the first check off by them. They actually, one of one of uh, Zach's mentors told us to burn the ships, um, which has become one of the mottos of us was to just jump in full time, not keep working on it as a part time gig. Um, and then we decided if we can raise the capital before Zach's first t- uh, full time job began um, in September, middle of September, then we would we would jump in and we would I would let my firm know that I was leaving to, to pursue patronage. Zach would forego his um, full-time job to pursue patronage, and then we would go in together. Um, so it was actually pretty uh, serendipitous. We were finally in the same room when we had raised the money, um, and Zach and I were both on um, on the phone talking with our employers, letting them know that hey, we're actually going to be we're going to be pursuing our, our startup and and hopefully helping you know make a dent in the student loan crisis. So those have been the two big milestones that we had to start. Um, obviously, a number a number of things that we've been um, shooting for and hitting um, since since October. Man, so I uh, just want to say that out loud. <laughs> right. So July to <laughs> exactly. the middle of September. That's, yeah, you're as shocked as I am. <laughs> that 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 is incredible. Um, all right, so we what, should have their folks on the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just yeah, well, a thought. I mean, we'll, we'll just we note that the number, number is one eight four four Wharton. Friends and family are welcome to call in. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. We do need to go to a short break. Um, when we come back, uh, we're going to think a little bit more about what it means to burn the ships. Um, how you. <laughs> attract the attention of some of the the big supporters that you have been able to to cultivate um, and then what you're learning throughout this whole experience. So we will be back uh, in just a few minutes. Stay with us, everyone. We'll talk more with Zach and Connor about patronage. I'm Jeff Klein. You're listening to Leadership in Action here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. All right, welcome back. Leadership in Action, Sirius XM, business radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeff Klein. I'm in the studio with Ann Greenhall. And this hour, we're talking with Zach Pelka and Connor Swafford, who are the co-founders of a company called Patronage. And we've been talking about Patronage and the work that they are doing with income sharing agreements to really uh, confront the growing crisis around uh, debt associated with college education, higher education. Um, maybe as we come back in, I, you know, I, I didn't say this as we opened, but, um, you each have titles. So Zach, (laughs) uh, I understand you are the chief executive officer, the CEO of patronage. And that means as I understand it, but don't let me put words in your mouth that you are responsible for business and operational strategy for product development, for finance and public relation and public relations, fundraising, Connor, you play the role of chief operating officer, so COO, and that means you run the day-to-day operations, um, and you're involved with human resources, you're involved with marketing, um, also have this fundraising role because you are, as we've noted, a startup. 
Um, so Zach, maybe maybe I'll start with you as as you get to mid September and both you and Connor pick up the phone and you let your employers down easy and let them know that you're going to be burning the ships, going full time to to patronage. Um, how do you have a conversation about roles and the mm-hmm. ways in which you're going to work together? Yeah, sure. So I think obviously we can bifurcate this both based on the decisions of titles and then roles as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think on the first topic, uh, it was originally my idea and I had basically spent about a month and a half threshing out the idea before basically thinking, yep, yeah, I'm willing to really try to focus on starting this full time, mm-hmm. which basically reached out to Connor because we have started basically one previous business and then we also had a business plan through Penn. So we've been working closely together and I was like, I want to do this with you. Mm-hmm. So just because I had been kind of working on this for a longer time, I think I ended up assuming the CEO role and was at least at the beginning more knowledgeable, but now he's definitely more knowledgeable than I am at this point with all the ISA stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say that Connor and I have very natural complementary skill sets. So Connor comes from a background of management consulting, um, where basically his focus has been on managing work streams um, and really being in the nitty-gritty operations of larger corporations. My background has been significantly more on basically the financial side. So I did M&A at PJT Partners, um, have worked in growth equity, venture capital, at a couple of different startups. So I think that we have a natural skill set that is very different, but also complementary. Um, I would also say that our personalities are significantly different, where I'm sort of very aggressive, incredibly optimistic, um, and always kind of thinking in the clouds. And then Connor is the very realistic COO who always has to be like, no, this isn't realistic, and basically reset goals and bring everything back down to earth. So we have a, a perfect sort of marriage in which both of us mm-hmm. are, are kind of pulling in different oper- opposite directions, but creates a happy medium between us. And and so, Connor, then, if, it, if you'd add your own perspective to this, I guess, first of all, you're in a little bit of a different position as all this gets started. You're, you're working full-time as a management consultant. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I hear those are pretty busy jobs. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so... As, as you get the call, I guess, just, you know, kind of walk us through um, your initial reaction. And if you if, as Zach describes, um, you're not the head in the clouds guy, you're the guy who says, I've got to make sure this is all going to line up and work. How do you go through this decision process to, to join Zach in this venture? Sure. Yeah. And I mean, Zach was is that is very correct in saying that he's the more optimistic one. I'm the more, if you will, pessimistic one um, or want to second guess every kind of decision that we may make. Yeah, yeah. realistic. Um, we'll just call you the <laughs> realistic <laughs> one. Realistic, yes. Um, so so what, what I had was I was working, you know, in, in Las Vegas for my client at the time, was moonlighting at about 10 p.m. until 2 a.m. and then would get up and do it again. And that was for about this three to four week period and as you noted, Jeff, it wasn't this long, drawn-out time to decide whether or not we were going to do it. <laughs> right. It, it was about six weeks. And, yeah, if my parents called in, they would, they would tell you how 
my sentiments on it changed from one week to the next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it wasn't an an easy decision, um, but there were two main things that were the strong uh, motivator for me to, to try and do it. One was that I've always had an interest in doing something entrepreneurial um, ever since Zach and I were both in, in high school and in middle school growing up. Um, we both had created our own separate you know, babysitting business or mowing lawns or, or plowing driveways of snow, different things here or there that we could think of. Both had passions for operating and, and creating our own mini startups, mm-hmm. if you will. So the chance to do that really excited me. The second was the chance to make an impact in education. Um, and this comes from my, my history and my, my family background. Uh, my grandfather immigrated here from India, from a small village of about a couple hundred people. The only way he was able to leave India was by getting a job um, and getting an education, uh, first and foremost. So he came to Kansas State, got a master's in engineering, and then worked to, as he was a lifer at General Motors, mm-hmm. worked his way up the ladder being able to bring the rest of my family over. And, and then my parent, my mom, was a first-generation um, American having just immigrated. Um, and so that has been something that ever since high school, I've been tutoring and figuring out ways to give back. Um, and uh, Dr. G, that's yeah. part of the reason why I was a TA, was to be able to give back to the students at, at Warden as well. So it's always been something that resonated with me. So the combination of the two, despite... As scared as I may have been, and I still am every day with a startup, am <laughs> yeah. uh, driven by the passion to create something and, and the passion to help help improve education. Well, Connor, I, I want to pass on to you something uh, a mentor of mine has said to me over and over again. Uh, and this is a little bit more in relation to teaching, but I would imagine it will apply to waking up a little scared every day. He said, what he said to me was, Jeff, um, it's the time you walk into a classroom and you're not anxious that you better worry about uh, mm. where that class is going to go. So uh, hope, <laughs> yeah. hopefully that it's fear, good. you know, that, that fear, that anxiety also uh, is a motivator for you. Over that's to you. Good. Oh, that's much. great. I'm just wondering, Zach, if, if you had similar experience to uh, as Connor growing up. Yeah. So definitely growing up, I've come from a very, very entrepreneurial family. Um, I actually saw in 2008, uh, my father was an executive of a a hardware company, and their company was bought out by a private equity firm, and everyone was fired during the recession. So my father ended up being entrepreneurial, bought the majority of inventory from this company, and basically started working out of our home. So through basically the majority of middle school and high school, my dad was working from home, and I saw him go from a fairly... I guess not miserable, but wasn't the happiest person being an executive of a larger company to the happiest person in the world where all he did was golf and just talk to people all day long. (laughs) So seeing that transformative shift of just personally, I was like, wow, I've always wanted to be entrepreneurial. Um, So I actually lived on a golf course and would go out during the summers and collect golf balls from the lake, clean them, organize them, sell them on the course, (laughs) sell them on eBay. So similar to Connor, I had many different little businesses throughout sort of high school, middle school. Um, And then my sister, who's been one of my biggest mentors, Hmm. um, has started two different companies, is currently running two different companies out in Silicon Valley. So I've had someone older than me my entire life who's really pushed me to just take the risk. You're not really taking a risk at this age. Things that you're going to learn by going through this process are incredibly invaluable. 
So you should be doing these things when you're young. And I think Connor would echo these sentiments that Mm -hmm. we feel like we've significantly sort of expedited our career timelines as well as just personal knowledge of of operating and business um, by taking that leap of faith and by really taking that risk. Very good. Now, you you set me straight. Did you know each other in high school? So, so we grew up, I grew up in Indiana, um, Zach's from Tennessee originally, um, but our origins trace back <laughs> to a class at Penn um, that you know very well, Mason right. 100. Um, so I was Zach's teaching assistant, um, <laughs> or team advisor, that his freshman year, my sophomore year. And then I got to know Zach as a student. Um, the following year, he ended up joining the same fraternity that I was in, so I got mm. to know him a little bit more informally. And then Zach and I took a class, um, strategy and economics, with uh, Professor Clemens, where we got to know each other on a business setting. And that's where we created our first business plan. Um, Then we started an Amazon um, arbitrage group business together, and then patronage ever since. So it's about a four-year history now at this point um, between the two of us. That's great. All right. So, all right, Jeff, you go ahead. I can tell you you had a question. (laughs) Well, I I know, you know, one of the... An, another, not one of, but another of the early successes that the patronage has experienced is you've been able to gain the intention, the attention of a number of different supporters, whether it's the CEO and president of the San Francisco Giants or the CEO of Inmar, um, founder at uh, Inova Capital Partners. So how has that process gone in terms of uh, outreach to investors, um, outreach to advisors, and then really cultivating their support over time? Yeah, sure. So I would say that it really started with friends and family. So Connor has a, a pretty good network, as do I, in terms of basically just personal family relationships. Mm-hmm. And that is the way we started where I asked my sister, hey, Jen, do you have any friends who venture capital investing or a startup company. So it started with one-offs mostly. And then every single person that we basically reached out to was like, oh, I love this idea. This is such an interesting concept. This makes so much intuitive sense. Of course, it runs this huge issue. And then I would say, I know XYZ person who has started this company, is an investor, would be very helpful. So I actually bought a one-way ticket to go out to San Francisco in August when we were saying, like we're going to jump in or not. And that was the moment where very, very quickly we were to connections that were three and four people off where we really had very little ties to them personally. Mm -hmm. And specifically in the fintech industry, we were receiving sort of the most uh, support. So we've had an incredible group of advisors, um, Michael Tarmina, who is the founder of Common Bond. So one of the biggest student loan players also started and piloted at Penn. Um, we have Ohad Zemet, who is the founder of True Accord, which is pretty much the top debt collection agency in the U.S. right now using artificial intelligence. And then we have the CTO of this company called Earnin, which is backed by Andreessen Horowitz and has all these incredible investors, and they are also in the lending industry. So just by basically having the humility and, I guess, the courage to reach out to A-list type people, I've found that it was incredibly receptive for the majority of people we interacted with and everyone is actually significantly friendlier than I think 
more powerful <laughs> people are typically given credit for. Mm -hmm. um, so well, they're, they're probably sick of everyone thinking they're unfriendly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. we're not bad yeah. guys and girls over here. We're... <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. No, yeah. So that's basically the way that we went about at the start. And then obviously, I think besides that, we really leveraged the Wharton connection. Mm. Um, if you go through Wharton Connect, you can look at all of the different people at Penn. And I literally looked up like venture capital partner, and I think there's 750 alumni currently that are venture capital partners. So hmm. if you're a Wharton person out there listening, definitely check it out because it's an incredible resource. And we found that the communal bond of people who have gone through this school mm -hmm. is so strong from advising to investing to just hopping on the phone and giving us advice. Yeah, and, and you said it, as you start to see first family friends and then these second, third, fourth order um, connections, uh, you were hearing, you know, a, a lot of positive feedback, a lot of positive reinforcement. Um, what kind of um, what kind of criticism did you hear or what kind of uh, what kind of problems were you able to view in new ways, you know, given the, the kinds of ad advice and feedback you were getting? Yeah, sure. So I think the biggest feedback that we've received kind of to start out with was it's impossible to start a finance-based lending company as 22 and 23-year-olds, where the people who are going to be providing all of this institutional capital are going to be seasoned veterans from Goldman Sachs. And every single conversation you have with anyone, you're going to be the least knowledgeable of the room. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that is one. I'd say more so on the product side, the biggest negative feedback that we have received is, oh, isn't this sort of like indentured servitude mm. in which our counter argument is like this is a significantly more flexible financial product than traditional student loans and in many cases is cheaper. So you can kind of label it however you want, but this is a legitimate tangible offer that in our market studies, over 65% of students on campus have preferred. Mm, very good. Zach, I have a follow-up question for you, and then, Connor, one for you. Um, I'm following Jeff's lead here. So friends, family, and then third, fourth order connections. Have you actually put together a board? Do you have, a, so in effect, a board of directors? So we do not have a board of directors at the moment. We mm -hmm. have a board of advisors, though. Okay. And how many are on the board? So we have three members on our board currently. That was Michael, Ohad, and Ramanik, um that I mentioned. Yeah. We've had significant actual inbound interest of being on the advisory board over the past kind of months since we've launched. Um, but our thought has been that we should keep it smaller for now and mm -hmm. then basically really focus on building out an incredible board of directors mm -hmm. as the longer-term strategy where it'll likely shift away from the advisory-type roles. Very good. And maybe, Connor, for you, um, I understand, am I right, that you have some hires. Is that true? People working that for is, you? Yes, that is, that is correct. Since, um, I want to say, October, we've been adding different members in, in full-time or part-time capacity. Mm -hmm. um, so... Starting back in October, we brought on four PhD um, computer scientists. Oh, great. Um, these, these data scientists have been applying machine learning 
to our data for the underwriting prediction models. Um, so what we what we foresaw um, when speaking with the competitors in the in the space, which is actually an interesting story. We we started off thinking we needed to go all stealth mode, not tell anyone um, about patronage, not let the competitors know, and then we actually flipped and said, okay, we have a lot to learn from all of all of these people, um, and then began reaching out and letting them know. But what we learned was their underwriting models were not as strong and data-driven as, mm. as ours are. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to be able to apply the best underwriting model and then try and work in partnership with all of our competitors, quote-unquote competitors, because the space is so small that we're going to be able to grow together. Um, so we hired those four um, as part-time uh, employees right now, and then we actually made our first full-time hire just before our launch at Penn um, in February. We brought on Evan Weiss, who's a former M&A um, lawyer as well as management consultant. Um, and so he is head of, of legal and regulatory for us, basically overseeing our ISA contract um, and then also beginning to coordinate with Washington um, mm. and speaking with politicians to try and help um, – get the legislation through, but also understand what they're thinking so that we can make sure that we are operating not in the law because the law is not set yet, but mm-hmm. with the regulations that are trying to go through um, so that we can try and be on the right side of this when everything comes out. Because um, mm-hmm. we would love to be able to help shape the policy um, in, this, in the best way possible uh, for the students. Very good. So now, been, yeah. go, ahead, go ahead. And that was Zach. Did you, did you want to chime, chime in? Nope, that wasn't me. Okay. Uh, all right. So, Connor, just a follow up. How, you know, the hiring of talent is such a, you know, very important and popular to- topic. How did you go about uh, securing Evan? So, coincidentally, we got extremely lucky. So, we <laughs> sat down at 29th and Madison um, in New York City, where our WeWork is. Um, the very first day, sat down and to our right, in the desk right next to us, was Evan Weiss. Oh, so it was as lucky as you could possibly get. Um, Evan was sitting there. He was working full-time for his law firm. And then would just kind of hear and see the things that, that we were working on. And he would ad hoc ask us a question or help us out with something um, all the way back in, in October and November. And then it wasn't until December was coming around, um, or January, that he actually asked Zach and myself, would you guys be interested in, in having me come join? Could I, could I do that? Oh, um, great. And Zach and I looked at each other and we were like, we didn't want to feel the guilt of telling a fourth year lawyer to associate, to, to leave his law firm that he was doing so well at, uh, was on the fast track for all his promotions to say, Hey, come and join this, this poor startup right now. Um, but when he asked us, we thought about it over the weekend and came back and said, yeah, we would love to have you. Actually, we're going down to Penn to launch in two weeks. Will you be able to come and join in time? Um, so that was our first hire. Evan's been with us ever since, um, and it's been it's been fantastic. <laughs> Very good. All right, I know we're shorter on time, so I'm going to hand back to Jeff. All right. Um, as we wrap up, I guess we'd like to just give you both uh, the chance for a brief word. And we know for many of our listeners, there are people who uh, are thinking about uh, entrepreneurial businesses, running small businesses. So um, from each of you, maybe Connor, we'll start with you and then over to Zach. Um, just a, a word of advice for anybody thinking about uh, branching out on their own. Yeah, I mean, 
to those that have the entrepreneurial spirit um, that have exhibited from from day one or or are interested in it, I would say ask around, ask and see what other people are doing that are in the space. Um, I've had a number of, of Penn students since learning about patronage reach out to me to try and learn about the tech meetups, fintech meetups. How do you meet uh, all the different individuals? What are the best things to know? Um, so trying to get plugged into the community, I think, is one of the best things that you possibly can do. Um, and then for those that have the idea that want to take it, I would follow the same mentality that Zach and I were told, which is burn the ship. Um, <laughs> if, you have, if you have the opportunity and you have the chance to take the, take the risk and take the endeavor, um, no turning back. All right. Zach. Well, Connor kind of just stole my thunder, but uh, I, I was just thinking uh, along with Nike, you, you should just do it. Um, I would be incredibly shocked if someone went out and started a company and felt regret about doing it in terms of the knowledge and skill sets that they've built. Um, I think that one of the most important decisions in life is sort of analyzing and taking calculated risks. And I think that this is a decision, us specifically, but I think people much younger in their lives it is an incredible opportunity, and it really has an asymmetric risk-reward profile, um, both financially as well as from just an overall career perspective. All right. Great. Well, that's great. Zach, Connor, we really appreciate you spending this hour with us. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. All right. Thank you. And for our listeners, don't touch that dial. After a short break, <laughs> you're going to hear portions of a conversation that I had recently with Rob Katz, who's the chairman and CEO of Vail Resorts. And if you stay with that conversation, you're going to find that Rob at the end is asked to provide a little bit of advice uh, to our graduating undergraduates and MBA students. And that advice sounds um, shockingly similar to the advice we just heard from Connor and Zach. I'm Jeff Klein. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.